0: Welcome to Wider Goals, a podcast that explores how individuals and organisations can connect higher purpose with the superpower of sport to create a better world for all. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and my guest this week is Henry Starlands, who made headlines in 2018 when, at the age of 30, he became the youngest CEO in the English Football League. At the time, his club, Forest Green Rovers, had only recently been promoted from the National League to the professional ranks of the EFL but had already been named by FIFA as the world's greenest football club. This intentional higher purpose had been set by the club's owner, Dale Vince, whose company Ecotricity powers the strictly vegan stadium with 100% renewable electricity and carbon neutral gas. Henry's job as CEO was to ensure not only that the football club was used as a vehicle to spread the sustainability message as far and as wide as possible, but also to make sure that its higher purpose translated to organizational performance on and off the organically fed pitch. During his five-year tenure, two playoff campaigns and the League Two title, which secured promotion to League One for the first time in the club's history, were combined with record commercial growth figures year on year, thanks to significant partnerships with recognized international brands like Oatley and Quorn, which sat incongruously on pitchside billboards alongside local taxi firms and solicitors, more typical of a club with average gates of around 2,500 fans. When Henry stepped down from his post earlier this year, Vince said losing Henry is a blow. He's a talented individual, but I understand his reasons. We've had five great years together. I'm very grateful to him and I wish him all the best in his next role. Well, that new role is the CEO of British ice hockey, a far cry from the 16 year old who was sacked from Argos as well as several other jobs. Talking about the incredible journey in entrepreneurship that he went on since then, the leadership lessons that he learned from such a unique experience, and how organizations can integrate their higher purpose, whatever that might be, into their operations. This is Wider Goals with Henry Stalins. Henry, welcome along. Thanks for joining me in my little boudoir here in Huddersfield. Um, we're going to talk a lot about your, your career and your, and your previous roles, but first of all, you're, what, nine months now into your new role with British Ice Hockey. How's that going?
1: Really enjoying it. Um, completely different set of challenges, but ultimately the output we want to get to is the same, which is a really good performance on the field of play uh, and a really strong business off it, um, but doing things in the right way. Doing things in another way was very much the message in your previous role at
0: Forest Green, wasn't it? First of all, I mean, you got quite a, a bit of... Media attention, obviously, because of, of uh, the business model at Forest Green and everything. But but you yourself, the youngest CEO in the EFL, uh, how did that come to be, and and, and why Forest Green?
1: It's like anything that's good in life; it was somewhat serendipitous. Um, so I had a company that I co-owned called Pinpoint Media. Uh, we produce effectively content. Um, myself, and my business partner worked at that for five years, um, and I guess it got to a stage where I wanted a new challenge and. He had ideas of how he could grow it on his own, so um, I sold my my share to to him. Um, and that company does really well today. It's, it's grown without me, which makes me very happy. Um, and I've gone on and, and done what I wanted to do. So ultimately, yeah, we took something in a really competitive market of content production. We did things very differently. Um, we won some of the, the biggest names um, out there and we made them trust and like the way that we worked. And yeah, it got to a point where you know, I, I enjoy the embryonic stages of business, I enjoy making things work, and I enjoy trying to create stressful situations for myself and that maybe other people don't. Um, but once it gets to a point that things are working really nicely, that's typically where I wanna go and um, find a, a new challenge.
0: What was it you were doing differently then with Pinpoint Media that made you um, different in the market?
1: A few things really, We we didn't use freelancers. We 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 had we had everyone in house, so we weren't paying day rates to uh, filmmakers um, or editors etc. We also banned the word video, which is why I just use the term filmmaker. I've not said that for a long time, but you know we banned the word video because film just sounds far more compelling as as a product. Um, and then you know, thirdly, we um, we were about ten percent the price of of the typical market rate, which was around two and a half grand per corporate film. So we went in at really low costs, but really high quality and people had no option but to give us a try because worst case, they were gonna lose a little bit of money because the, the quality is rubbish. But once they, they got their final film for their website or their TV advert, etc., they were really impressed. So they become very sticky clients. And I know a lot of those clients are still with the with the company today. Mm. Then it just came to be that um, I met with Dale, uh, the chairman of Forest Green um, in the, I think it was the September. And he offered me the role by the October. Um, their previous chief executive stepped down a couple of months earlier. Um, as I said I'd sold my company had an entrepreneurial background and I guess I was the right fit at the right time for them
0: mm. and you I mean Dale as a character quite interesting quite a unique sort of person but seemingly willing to give people
1: a chance yeah you know a lot of people have got a lot of opinions on Dale um, but I've got nothing bad to say about him he, he's, a, he's a he's a brilliant guy um, one of the smartest I've ever met especially in that innovation space mm. um, and he takes a chance on people mm. um, I hadn't worked in football before but I'd had a, had a media company before so I had maybe like a uh, somewhat of a business acumen um, and a real passion for football um, so my goal was ultimately how can we I guess how can we um, how can we amplify what Forest Green is all about and how can we make that commercially viable and show other companies and other organisations that this is a real way that you can run a business these days and be profitable.
0: Mm. And, which is a which is a big undertaking and uh, I guess Forest Green is is such a a globally well-known story really now because there's such a strong message there and obviously Dale leads that. Um, everybody knows it's about sustainability and environmentalism. What are the first steps then that you take to converting that idea, that higher purpose into a, a sporting and commercial success?
1: I think if I look at the, the job I did as a whole when I joined there we were probably everyone's most hated club um, because of the fact we had a higher purpose. We were a bit different in the world of Football and sport. Um, we were the vegan weirdos. We were uh, we were trying to do something a bit different and do things in the right way. And you know, opposition fans would would hammer us at every opportunity they could, and they still do. You've on social media now, and the, the amount of steak gifts you'll see, uh, it just never gets old. Um, so I'd look away at the away section um, at, at the new lawn every week, and there'd be people dressed up as butchers or, or pigs or whatever. But over time, as as we stuck with our message, we were clearly authentic in what we did. Uh, we were consistent about how we did things. People start to come on the journey with us, whether they, you know, they agreed with how we did things or not. They they couldn't go against the fact that we weren't preachy about it. We weren't black and white. This is just how we want to run an organisation. And if others people uh, if other people want to learn from that, then they're more than welcome to. And we, you know, we gave advice and guidance to hundreds of organisations when I was there, um, and lots of fans went vegan or vegetarian, or they bought electric cars um, out of their own choice. So. When I joined I saw it as this is a really niche idea Um, How can we make it profitable um, by doing things in the right way and show there's another way to your point of doing things
0: The black-and-white analogy there's a literal side to that as well isn't there with the change of colors and uh, An element of resistance as well as apart from the Mickey taking from away fans but there must have been an element of resistance as well from the home supporters, which are obviously a key stakeholder in the club,
1: absolutely. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I thought the fans were um, were vocal in the right ways when I was there. There's obviously things I didn't agree with, but ultimately, if you look at where the club was before Dale took over to where it was when I left, um, you know, they were in the National League. They were in the National League pretty much every season, which is fantastic for a club of that size. Mm. You know, by the time I left, we were in League One. Obviously, the the kit colours had changed, and uh, some of the branding had changed, and the way we did things had changed. But ultimately, that that you know that for a club of that scale or that size to get to where we got to, it does need something different. Um, otherwise, you just become one of those small clubs that's constantly fighting year on year, mm. um, and the underdog story does get a bit old um, if you're doing that. So yeah, we did things in a different way. Fans weren't always going to agree with absolutely everything, but I think fans could see that ultimately. All the decisions we made were, were for the uh, best interests of the club.
0: And how about taking other stakeholders on that journey in terms of staff specifically? Um, did you detect during the period that you were there a shift in uh, engagement with what uh, staff's daily kind of um, daily duties were? Uh, a sense of higher purpose and how that affected their individual performances?
1: Yes and no. I, I think Dale's such a um he's so strong-minded in in himself there was never a question of are we going to do things this way or that way it was always going to be we're going to be sustainable we're going to be socially conscious um so staff didn't really need to come on the journey they were already on that journey as soon as they walked through the door and when we recruited it it wasn't hard to um to talk to people about what we were about because everyone knew Mm. so people didn't come to an interview and then be surprised um about the fact that there's only vegan food served on site mm. and we've got electric car charging points and we're you know we're, we're big on energy transport and food so of course there it takes a bit of time for everyone to get up to speed with that but in my time there everyone was so committed to i guess the the higher goals mm. that um no there was no problem with that at all and what did you identify?
0: First of all, when you first went in, as areas that you could develop uh, and and have an impact and, as I said, sort of turn that vision into something um, tangible.
1: We had to control what we can control, and I'm the same now in, in, in any business I get involved in. Um, we couldn't necessarily control the crowd sizes. We were based in Nailsworth, which had a population of 5,000, I think, and our stadium held 5,000. So if you look at it like that, we're probably the best supported club in the world, was, was, was the message I used to give. Um, but we were never going to fill the, the stadium unless we were playing the likes of... Uh, I don't know, Bradford City or Bristol Rovers, we might get close, or Cheltenham Town. Which were the bigger clubs within that division at the time? Exactly, right. Um, But what we could control and really maximise was partnerships um, and retail. Uh, the, the, you know, we, we gained this overseas audience. We had 120 international fan clubs. I think at one point, 46% of our retail was going overseas. And those fans weren't, didn't start supporting us because we were really good at football. They started supporting us because they loved what we were about off the pitch and that we were more than just a football club in their eyes. Um, and then partnerships grew by five times when I was there. Um, you know, the likes of Corn and Oatly and Bolt and Innocent Smoothies, you know, really global players um, getting involved with, with little old Forest Green. Um, that was the. Those were the two areas we can control in terms of partnerships and retail. Match day, we made as good as we can, but there was huge limitations on the stadium, which is why obviously they're moving now to Eco Park, the world's first all-wooden stadium. So, yeah, we control what we control and make the best of what we what we can't. And for anybody
0: who's listening to this or watching, and isn't familiar with the the ins and outs of the stories, in in, in kind of real terms, um, what were the what was the message that people that these brands were associating themselves, and what were you putting into practice in terms of the infrastructure of the club that was so appealing?
1: They were, I guess, they were aligning with the World's Greenest Football Club. Um, that moniker was given us to us by FIFA, which is very handy. Um, we were also the world's first um, UN-certified carbon-neutral sports team. Again, a name like United Nations getting behind you means a lot. Um, the practices we, we were the world's only vegan football club at the time our pitch was vegan organic um, we were powered by 100% uh, wind and sun energy um, we were the first team to use an electric coach for an away match for our players our kits were made out of coffee or bamboo or other other quirky things to to tell the story so yeah anything in that world of sustainability and environmentalism was really um, how we how we operated
0: so when you reflect on that period now what were the biggest successes for you personally and, and the biggest challenges?
1: I think on the pitch obviously, everything culminated in promotion to League One. Um, we had a really good um, team in, in, in the back room with uh, football operations and director of football and commercial and everything was pulling in the right, the right direction that season and that was very much a culmination of our work. We, we, we were profitable year on year, it allowed us to invest further in the squad. There was a good feel good factor around the club fans were on board we had a great coach um and ultimately that's no matter how good you do off the field the fans judge it by how you do on the field so i'd say that was definitely the biggest success um challenges people always ask me was it was it hard to run a vegan football club or whatever genuinely no um it was far easier actually because we were the only club putting sustainability into the dna of what we did so when it came to commercial conversations you know we were the only the only game in town um and we stood out our, our story was different our messaging was different um how we held ourselves was different and no i of course there were challenges along the way but ultimately i would say it was um a far clearer journey than, than many might might think
0: how about dealing with the owner then because i know you speak highly of him you have a good relationship but he has quite a, a high Public profile at the minute, and lots of people are seeing he's quite a character. um and with some very strong ideas. That must have been a challenge as well to to deal with that and and put some of those ideas across and and I guess be the the conduit.
1: Mm. No, I, I, I'd love to tell you uh, that it was harder than it was. Um, Dale and I are very different, with similar in some ways. Dale's different to a lot of people, right? Mm. Um, but no you know there, there were things i don't agree with everything he he does no one agrees with anything anyone else does but um no on the on the whole we got on very well we respected each other um i ran the organization as if it was my own it was my own money it was my own uh my own people my own time And i think if you go into it looking like that you're always going to make decisions that are best for business yeah. um so no absolutely it was dale's messaging and direction i just ran it as best i could whilst i was there um to make sure that uh, we were profitable and viable. And if we weren't profitable and viable, then the world would look at us in a different way and think we can't run an organization like that. Mm. So we had to be the, I guess, a role model for a different way of doing things.
0: That's fascinating. And and you, I mean, you, you were a young entrepreneur, I think at 16 when mm. you, you first started wheeling and dealing. And and I'm, I'm sure through, through the early part of your entrepreneurial career, you had a fair shift in mindset and personal development but on a personal level that experience that you had at that club and, and working with such a specific higher purpose that had never really been integrated that much, I don't think, there's very few examples in this country at least, what were the personal learnings and the personal development you went on through that experience?
1: I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it but I, you know, I, I obviously developed hugely um, I guess as a leader, um, I always had a knack for the commercial side of things, The um, You know, uh, that's always been ingrained in me and that's one of the reasons that um, I left school at 16 and managed to turn it around, I guess, because I I understood what makes people buy things and what makes people tick. Um, But yeah, just learning that you can do things in a different way, and as long as you're consistent and you're completely behind it and you don't take any backward steps, um, people buy into that. Um, And that's one of the biggest problems we see now when you see other organisations try and do something green and then they do nothing about it for the next two or three months, people can see through that. It's greenwashing. Um, the only organisations that are going to do well with a higher purpose are going to be those that genuinely do it for the right reasons because they'll have someone driving it day in, day out, and all of their messaging will carry the same theme. So, yeah, maybe I, I learned a fair amount about that, you know, how to do things differently, but you have to be super consistent with it.
0: And committed to it and put it at the core of everything you That's do. to be authentic. Yeah. Okay, so how do you now, in, in your new role, translate those learnings into a, a completely different sport, a sport that has a, a much different profile, certainly in this country, uh, and an organisation that's, uh, well it, it's an organisation, it's not, it's not a, a, a club, so the difference is there, right?
1: Absolutely, um, I could have walked in and made it the world's greenest uh, national governing body but it, it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Um, our challenges are that we've got some phenomenal athletes and some phenomenal teams from 16s, boys and girls, up to the senior men's and women's. Um, how do we give them the most professional pathway? Um, how do we give them the most professional environments to train and compete in? That's really my focus at the moment. Um, we're absolutely about to release a, a strategy from 2024 to 30, 2030, um, and sustainability will be a big part of that um, because I have a genuine belief that it should be. Um, any organisation that doesn't take that seriously a uh, are looking at things wrong um it's the right thing to do and it's a smart thing to do so um yeah the, the challenges are, are very different there's a lot more governance and compliance because you are dealing with a, a national governing body and you are responsible for um you know a, a far bigger remit in that sense but you know day-to-day is somewhat slower there's, there's more time for decision making because you're not um having two home games in a week or um traveling around the country to to watch games so um yeah, we've got you've got more time for decision making and you can be a bit more um I guess um there's an expectation you can be a bit slower in how you get to places, but being how I am, um, I want to get things done as quickly as possible and there's a hell of a lot to do. So it will get there quickly, but it feels like there's less pressure to make rapid decisions along the way when you're running a governing body.
0: It's a great opportunity for you, isn't it? It's still at a young age and still at um, you know, with so much ahead of you to actually take something um, in a relatively embryonic state and really create something um, long-term.
1: Absolutely. Ice hockey's one of the most popular sports in the world, right? Um, but in this country, it's the best uh, supported indoor sport, but it's maybe not on the level of football. Of course it's not. But there's teams in the elite league getting four, five, six thousand 6,000 fans a week. So it's no different really to League One of football in that sense. Ice hockey being as popular as it is around the world, why can't we make it one of our most cherished sports here. So I really do think we can. And yeah, it's a great opportunity because I want to see GB do well. That's very much under under mine and my team's remit is how can we get the senior men and women to the Olympics? How can they do uh, well at the world championships? How can we make sure that every player feels valuable on the journey with us? So we're going through a huge shift at the moment in terms of how we, how we communicate and engage players and coaches um, through that performance pathway.
0: Are they the sort of big wins that you've identified that you can have a, an early and immediate impact in?
1: Yeah, the moment I walked through the door, it was obvious to me that everything needs to be professionalised further. There's a lot of really good people in ice hockey giving their time, commitment, expertise um, to it. How do we make them feel more valued? How do we make them stick with us for the entire journey? Um, there was obviously there was a fair amount of attrition um, because maybe they hadn't had a um, someone leading the sport um, in the way that I do previously. So for me, it's about making sure everyone comes on the journey with us, is treated in the right way, shown the value that they have to the organisation and shown the clear role that they have in getting us to, to our vision. So that's a big part of what we're doing at the moment is making everyone feel part of their own um, area, but also part of, of the wider goal.
0: That's really interesting. How do, how do you actually go about doing that then, Henry, in terms of giving people, I guess, autonomy and purpose and meaning to their work, right? That's what everybody looks
1: for. Absolutely. um, I'm a big believer in autonomous accountability. I've said it a number of times. And that's about trusting someone to do the job better than you could, right? You bring in experts, whether it's in performance or nutrition or sales or marketing or finance. The idea of micromanaging them is just crazy to me. You know, you might as well do it yourself. Um, So ultimately, tell people where where you want to get to, what your expectations are, be really clear, Um, show them how their role and their output has an impact on the bigger picture, and then let them get on with it. But give them support along the way. Don't make them feel ostracized or alienated. They can be very open with you about any challenges or any support they want along the way, um, but let them get on with
0: it. I get the sense that this is a an ingrained kind of instinct in you rather than a learned behavior. I'm interested to know where that came from and where that that idea of autonomous accountability comes from. As a young entrepreneur, At 16 and the learnings that you had through that experience
1: i don't really know i think um maybe i'm wrong no you're probably you're probably right but i just think um i've never really looked at looked at it and and i'm not one for much self-reflection that's probably uh, that's probably an issue but um well you clearly didn't
0: like being told what to do um
1: you know or, or or necessarily feel
0: that higher education was had to be the path for you that a lot of people feel comfortable within yeah. do you know what i mean there was a moment where you stepped out of your comfort zone or other people's comforts
1: yeah i had to so maybe if, if i were to analyze it quickly now i would say that i had to be autonomous and I had to be accountable to myself because if, if you haven't got any qualifications and i left school with just gcse's so i didn't go to sixth form or anything so if you, if you do leave school with that and everyone else is going off to sixth form or university and they've got like a more traditional path and their cv's going to look good when they step into the world of work mm. I had to do things differently and I, I wasn't one for authority, I guess, which is probably where the autonomy comes from, mm. so let me get on with it. Um, and then the accountability is if I didn't um, do well for myself, then I had nothing to fall back on. Mm. So, um, yeah, you've just analysed me very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah.
0: Um, is there is there an element as well of... Um, I'm thinking aloud a little bit now myself for my own trajectory of going through sixth form college and university where that autonomy is taken out of your hands, but it's it's comfortable in a way because um, you're kind of being told what to do. Someone's laying out a structure for you. Someone's giving you classes to go to and a routine to follow into your early twenties. Um, and actually perhaps for all everybody thinks that going to uni and stuff is um, a way to get autonomy and a sense of freedom and um, yeah, uh, independence.
1: Perhaps it's not. The way I see university is that you shouldn't feel the need to go if you don't want to go. Um, But it almost feels like a bit of a black mark against you if you didn't go to university. People people just expect that, like, the amount of times people said to me, oh, where did you go to uni? And like, oh, fucking hell. So um, yeah, I think I want my doctor to go to university, (laughs) or I want my lawyer to go to university, but and and anyone else that wants to go to university to further self-develop themselves or find themselves, I guess, then that's fine. But you shouldn't, there shouldn't be a need that you have to go to university. Yeah. Um, I would always hire on what I see in front of me and what people have done in their career over what they've maybe achieved academically mm-hmm. um, I just think life experience you learn so much so quick especially mm-hmm. when you're thrown into the deep end and you've got you've got to do things you've got to figure it out quickly right so yeah I don't think that that's my feeling on university is you shouldn't have to go but if, if you want to go and you feel that it's right for you then absolutely it's a good choice mm-hmm.
0: so what was that journey for you then you left school at 16 with no GCSEs And And
1: I had to have some GCSEs. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's the one thing I have got. (laughs) Let's just pretend you didn't, you know, for the sake of the story. Yeah, yeah. uh, With GCSEs, but um, with a need um, or a drive to go out there and and make something of yourself. And uh, did it matter what that looked like at that time? I
1: don't think I even had that drive at the beginning. I I left Adelaide School, I worked every retail job you could think of. I worked in Argos, I worked in the pasty shop, I worked in JJB Sports, I worked in uh everywhere, right? And I couldn't keep a job. I was getting sacked from all these all these jobs for, for various um minor demeanors. And um it got to a point where I had to work for myself because I had no qualifications and I had no one that gave me a reference. So I got to twenty and then had to go into the world of right, what do I do? and i w I'm always best when my back's against the wall um, my backs against the wall. Um because when your back's against the wall you've got no option, right? Until that point you can be a bit lazy and whatever else. So um yeah, I got to the age of twenty, twenty-one, 21, um, and had no choice but to think, right, how can I monetize myself? Um, and that's when I started my own company.
0: I see you as a conscious leader now in, in what you're doing, the way that you lead, and, and how you've, what you did at Forest Green, but what you're doing now in your new role. Um, and a big element of that is empathy. I'm sure you haven't, like you said, you don't reflect a lot, but if you can do now and you look back on being in that position where you had your back against the wall, you worked different jobs, how does that play out now in a leadership role when you're dealing with staff and, and as you said, giving them autonomy and freedom of decision?
1: I'm far more empathetic now than I ever have been. Um, I think when I I left school, I had a chip on my shoulder and over time, when I I sold um, the company that I co-owned, that chip had gone. Because, you know, you leave school, everyone goes to university and they're doing great things. And, um, once I'd sold my company, um,
0: Did you feel like you'd won?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A million percent. Mm. So, after that, I just, I was able to take more time with things and care more about, uh, how people felt and how you communicate with people and, you know, the bigger picture, like how's their life outside of work and genuinely take an interest in them rather than just, Christ, I need to be successful really, really quickly. So I think, yeah, over time, my leadership has definitely changed. Um, And the older you get, um, you definitely, you learn the importance of that. Um, So yeah, I think there's there's been a massive shift. I see my life in maybe three stages. That sort of manic first stage, then selling the company, and then where I am now. Mm. So there was a, a shift from a competitive
0: mindset to a collaborative one at some stage. When you look around, do you see... Other leaders, perhaps still stuck in a competitive space.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, you see it all the time. People are just maybe doing things for the wrong reasons for quick wins or um, self-protection, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, there's, there's different styles of leadership. I, I just think, um, I think if you if you make the right choices for the right reasons along the way, it might not be an instant gratification, but you will be more successful longer term. And that's something we focused on for screen. What we're doing now in in ice hockey, um, like making the right decisions, not expecting, um, you know, a great outcome tomorrow, but it will stand us in good stead over the longer term as a as, as a brand and an organisation.
0: How do you um, you get that message across then to 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 the organisation that you that you're currently working for, or if it was a a private commercial entity, um, because some people take a bit of convincing to go for the long term wins over the short term
1: ones, don't they? They do, then they're probably not right, right for me. Yeah. Um there's absolutely no point in walking into something and doing it for six months and thinking it's not enough that quickly. Um it just it's it's not it, it doesn't make sense to me. If 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 someone comes in and they're willing to invest in the vision and they, and they align themselves with it and they buy into it, um, then they can't be expecting short term gratification. Of course there'll be wins along the way. Mm. But ultimately, they want to be here in five years' time when we're at the Olympics or whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, if they're just focused on those short term um, wins, then they're probably in the wrong, wrong organisation.
0: So, what does the future look like then for, for British ice hockey on the whole, do you think? I mean, obviously, it's got good attendances, it's, um, there, there is a level of interest in, in this country. Uh, participation wise there are certain barriers to entry uh, in in a lot of communities um, as well and um, what 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 does the future look like on a, on a wider scale
1: we've got to do our part in breaking down those those accessibility issues at the beginning because ice hockey is not a cheap and easy sport to get into um, because it's not a national sport like it maybe is in in Canada or, or, or whatever here everyone grows up and there's a football near them and they can kick a football it's free it's it's pretty straightforward ice hockey you've got a have all the gear you've got to find ice time you've got to learn how to skate like it's it's a really difficult sport to get into so we need to make sure that we open doors for for those that maybe um struggle to get into it for whatever reason there might be and then we need to lead them through the pathway and make sure they're looked after both on the ice on the ice and off the ice um and if they're good enough when they get to 16 then they'll they'll come into the GB squads um but I think ice hockey's got a, a really bright future in this country. Um, both the senior men's and senior women's are, are on on the right trajectory um you know there's loads of upsides um with our with our women's program so we're investing hugely in that and the men's program have performed really well over the last few years so what can we do to make that more consistent um so we're working with them now um to understand i guess all those little wins um that we can build into the performance program to i guess make their their environment easier mm. for them to to give 100% every single time.
0: And on a sustainability side, engaging partnerships in the way that you did at Forest Green, albeit it's going to be a very different kind of uh, challenge, not least because ice hockey fundamentally is, in this country or countries where we don't naturally, I mean, we do get cold weather, but we don't have ice rinks everywhere. You've got to create that. Um, and not all the venues you know, are, are kind of ready to, um, to power that sustainably is, have, you, have you got a kind of a long term view on, on how that can be addressed
1: yeah there's a couple of ways that we were looking at I mean UK Sport um, are investing in sustainability um, and providing guidance advice to uh, national governing bodies um, obviously I've got a fair amount of background in that but I'd be interested to hear how they're doing that so that's great that they're taking like a, a wider view on not just ice hockey but how can we make as many of our sports as possible more sustainable mm-hmm. um, but then obviously from From an organisational standpoint it's very much part of our strategy from 2024 to 2030 how can we become as sustainable as we can and how can we have more social impact and that would be around getting people into ice hockey giving them an opportunity to get on the ice and skate and learn and enjoy it and if they want to take it on as a as a career or alongside their studies then they need to have the opportunity to do that you mentioned
0: earlier about how you like to get involved in an organisation at an embryonic stage and uh, that was the case at forest green in terms of the project that they were putting in place and and still are and and now we're in the same situation uh, with british ice hockey but f- for you what's what does the future look like then is this uh, an opportunity for you to put some long-term strategies in place and then move on and do it somewhere else or are you going to stick around to see those through
1: i'd hope that I'd stick around and see them through because i think even in five years um it will still be somewhat embryonic um it might well be that we can um we can speed things up and I hope we get to where I'd like us to get to quicker than the strategy dictates. But ultimately, you know, we're allowing ourselves six years from twenty twenty four to twenty thirty to achieve our vision. Um and that is for our men and women to be competitive on on the world stage. Um, so competing at Olympics, opportunities of of medal finishes, um, and also bringing more and more players through a performance pathway that looks on the, looks after them on and off the ice, um, and if we do that we'll have more players coming into ice hockey and we'll have more players staying in ice hockey, and when they do get to the senior squads they would have had a really good journey of getting there and hopefully they'll be um, ready to compete. Are you already starting to think beyond that
0: as to what the next challenge might be?
1: No, genuinely no, I um, my last two roles I, I did pretty much exactly five years in each, um, I think you know it might be longer than that it might be a bit shorter than that but ultimately I'm, I'm here until um I guess my I always think there's, there's chief execs who um maybe are better at certain stages than others um I couldn't walk into an organization that was perfect and and I, I I want to walk into an organization that's a bit a bit chaotic as you know loads of moving parts how do I bring them all together and make and make sense of them so um until everything's perfect then no I'm very very happy and that we're a long way from that.
0: And I know when I mentioned at the start before we started recording here about conscious capitalism and you're like what's that it's really fascinating that going through your journey and listening to your current activities but also your plans for your future how much of that is actually integrated into what you're doing and um, I've really really enjoyed the conversation and um, thanks once again for doing it I think hockey is in good hands in this country. Cool thank you Matt. My thanks again to Henry for such an enjoyable and really enlightening conversation. His own journey from a 16-year-old school leaver, albeit with a few GCSEs, to Football Club CEO within just 14 years, and now the head of a major British sporting body, is inspiring in itself. But what really stands out to me from talking to him and being in his company before and after we recorded is that he's authentic, he's humble, and he really understands people. The Forest Green Rover story is an interesting one, actually. and Most people will be aware of Dale Vince because of his media profile and this fantastic message that they're putting out there around sustainability in sport and beyond. But of course, you still have to perform as an organisation for people to hear that message and for it to really land. Unfortunately, since Henry left, the club have been relegated from League One and currently sit bottom of League Two, with a successive relegation back out of the Football League looking increasingly likely. Hopefully that won't happen. There's still half the season to go, but I do feel like their loss is British ice hockey's gain and it will be really interesting to see how that journey progresses over the coming years. Well, that's it for this somewhat exploratory first season of Wider Goals. If you've just found us, please check out the previous episodes. Give us some much needed feedback, like subscribe and all of that stuff and tell your friends too, because we will be back with much more content like this and much more often too in 2024.